Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, Luke 14. I had a few people this week ask me, what does your title mean? And it means exactly what it says. Um, And so tonight we are, one of the biggest games of the year is going to happen at the Super Bowl. And if you're like me, um, I'm a sports fanatic and I like to see all the uh, debates and all the statistics of you know the different teams and try to figure out who it actually might win and of course you never know until they get on the field but you know, so you watch all these shows and it's it's claimed to be the unofficial holiday of the united states more people tune into the super bowl than most any other sporting event any other even sometimes even the state of union dress any of those things super bowl is one of the biggest um events um it is the second biggest day for pizza um, and so if you like pizza, don't order pizza today because it's going to be a long time. So we all those things. But most of these NFL players have been playing pretty much their whole life, been giving, devoting themselves to the game of football. Um, they started in probably in peewee football and then moved to junior high, high school, college, and then on to the NFL. Obviously, obviously you always hear stories of different people who, went different ways, you know, maybe started in soccer or went to football or something like that. But out of the 10,000 seniors who play high school football, only 215 will ever even make it to the um, NFL roster. That's 0.02% of the people who play football every year, every, all, and that's the seniors. And only 9,000 of them who make it to college, only 310 even sniff the scouting combine. And that's to see if you're even good enough. And then I looked up the average year for an NFL player is three and a half years. You always see the players that played for 14, 15 years. And, you know, you, I was probably one of those kids who said, you know, I want to play professional sports when I grow up. And, and your parents just look at you like, that probably won't happen. I mean, very rare does it happen that you play professional sports. In order to even be able to play even in varsity level football... You have to be pretty committed. When I played football, it started with weight training and with constant weight training off the season. You're almost busier on the off season than you were during the season. And then you would be always conditioning, always keeping your body in shape. There would never be a a time when you shouldn't be in shape. Um, In fact, at our school, they would tell us to take track. That way it keeps us in shape. Or do other sports, that way it keeps you in shape. Whether you're good or not, just keeps you running, keeps you motivated, keeps you in shape for the next season. And then when practice starts, usually starts in about mid-July. And I was from Kansas, middle of Kansas, and that's about 90 degrees to 110 degrees. And then about 90 to 100% humidity. And so you're in the sweat and you're just going through the getting in shape process of football. And that, those are always not as fun as the games. But they're necessary things. And so I would wake up at 4.30 um, every morning and go for a two-day practice. And we would go from 5.30 to 8 o'clock practice. And then school, then after school, we would go and practice for another two hours. And we would do this before up to the first game. And it cost a lot of... Um, what I 
wanted to do. If I wanted to go hang out with friends, I didn't have the time to go hang out with friends. I was busy playing football. Or if I wanted to do certain activities, I didn't have time to do that because I was busy doing football, either weight training or whatever it may be. I also had to give up certain foods. I can't tell now, but I did have to give up certain foods then. But we live in a postmodern world. And if we do not know what that means, it means that there is no absolute truth. Or actually, it means that there is no absolute... What truth is what you think truth is. So my truth is different from your truth. But, so it's absolute in my mind, but not really absolute at all. You can't say there's, there's really no such thing as truth in the postmodern world. But even in the church, we have a postmodern influence. Um, a lot of us in the church say, well, you know, I interpret it this way, you interpret it that way, and we'll just, you know, disagree to disagree. But there are many things in scriptures that we can't disagree. And Bible Study 101 says that there's only one interpretation for all of scripture. And so, now, doesn't mean I have the right interpretation, doesn't mean necessarily someone else has the right interpretation, but it means there's only one. And so when you hear multiple interpretations of scripture, you need to put a red light up because you need to find the consistency of what God's word is saying. To give you some examples of this postmodern Christianity, if you want to call it, that has influenced church, here's a couple of quotes from well-known um, preachers, speakers, um, that would claim to be Christian. One says, loving God, loving yourself, and loving others. That's their motto. Sounds okay. Maybe. But how about this? Do all you can to make your dreams come true. You can be happy where you are. Choosing to be positive and having a grateful attitude is going to determine how you're going to live your life. If you give $10, then the Lord will bless that three times more and you will have $1,000. If you give, then you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. A.W. Tozer said this. If you would like to reference it, it's actually on the front of your bulletin. But A.W. Tozer said this. It is either all of Christ or none of Christ. I believe we need to preach again a whole Christ to the world. A Christ who does not need our apologies. A Christ who will not be divided. A Christ who will either be Lord of all or will not be Lord at all. Christ, God in the flesh, came down out of heaven voluntarily. Lived a perfect, sinless life. And at times, even his closest friends would dismiss him or not want to be next to him because he would say radical things. He was seen as a heretic. He was seen as a blasphemer, as a liar. Even at times, again, he was seen as an outcast. Christ was a radical and demanded everything. And they didn't like that. For that, he was sentenced to death on a cross. He was whipped to the point where he would not have been recognized by anyone. Skin probably hanging off his body from being whipped so much. There was spit in his face. And no one, not one person ever said, wait, don't do that. They just let it happen. He had no allies. He walked the streets with a cross, dragging behind him, yet he was so weak that somebody else had to carry it for him. 
They put a crown of thorns on his head and drove it into his scalp. They drove nails into his wrists and he hung on a cross, suffocating to death. One of the worst ways of um, being killed at that time. If, if that was the worst part, even his own father turned on him because his father couldn't even look at sin. This morning, we see that Christ gave everything, absolute everything, so that you can have eternal life. But, he said, I'm going to issue some terms, and these terms are going to cost you everything. This morning, we're going to see three things. We'll see that it will cost us our loved ones. It will cost us our life. And it will cost us everything to follow Christ. Luke 14, 25-35 is our text. Follow along as I read. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, he is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in the war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone who do, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my, be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how, can, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile it is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, what sobering words these are. Father, which sometimes we forget as those who have been saved that not only are we saved freely by the grace of God and by faith and by the cross that you've given us, but Father, you issued things and you said, this is what it's going to cost to follow me. Father, you were radical in your approach. And sometimes we don't like radical. Sometimes we don't like to hear that kind of truth. We live in a society where we've got to water down or make it feel better or to build somebody's self-esteem. And sometimes these words don't build that self-esteem. But Father, they're truth. They're your word. And Father, we want to know what your word says. Father, they're humbling Father, but they're changing. They'll change our lives. I pray, Father, that each and every person in this room, Father, will be affected by the words of this text. And, Father, not jump into something without counting the cost first. We love you, and we thank you so much for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 25, we see a, a typical scene. A crowd's gathering, multitudes gathering around Christ. 
He did this at the Sermon on the Mount. And you can go through Jesus' times. And many times he was just with his disciples. And many times he was with the, um, this, these crowns. Now, within these crowns, there were different kinds of people. We can't say that they were all born-again believers. Just like in a church, we can't say that everyone who walks in our church is a born-again believer. Has repented of their sins. Has counted the cost. One, we can say this because many times the Pharisees and the Sadducees would follow Christ to see if he would slip up, see if he would say something that um, they could accuse him of many times. And they would want to know what he's saying. So they would analyze what Christ is saying. At the same time, we also know that not everyone was born again because Judas, the twelfth disciple, was not born again. He was a rebel. He was a person who betrayed Christ. And so we know within this crown, there's a mixture of people. And obviously Christ wanted to be radical in his approach here. Obviously he came out and said these things for, I think the reason would be, is because he doesn't want half-hearted people or people just being there to hear him say things because it's not for them. He doesn't want to entertain People. He's not an entertainer. He just wants to give you the truth. And here's the truth. And he wants people who really wanted to follow Christ to follow Christ. He doesn't want those um, half-hearted or those who um, say they're disciples, but actually they need to do other things before being a disciple of Christ. Christ here was turning around and was about to lay out some terms. And these terms were not to be questioned, reasoned, or negotiated with. These terms that he was laying out were to, in order to follow Christ, the, this is what you must do. They were terms that determined a disciple and a Pharisee, a sheep and a wolf, the tenders and the pretenders, the saved and the unsaved, the Christians and the non-Christians. These terms would define Christ's ministry and he would not back down and nor should we. The only way we can enter the narrow gate is by the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is Christ coming and dying for our sins. The gospel is Him being in the grave three days, His own Father turning His back on Him. The gospel is Him resurrecting on the third day for our sins, conquering death. The gospel is saying that He's going to come back. The gospel is also living a life worthy of the cause. What's the cause? This. This is the cause. I don't know necessarily, you know, we all have different reasons of being at church. Some of us, we love the church because that's where we get fed and that's where God's word is. That's where God's people are. Some of us become, come because it's a social exercise. Some of us come because it's required of us. Some of us come because that's where my friends are. Or some of us come because that's just what I do. J.C. Ryle said, Conversion is not taking someone in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. So as we reflect in the next nine verses, let us be reminded that it is our Lord Jesus Christ who set these terms. Not me, not anybody else, but Christ set these terms. 
verse 26 and 27, says, If any man comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, the first thing we see is it costs our loved ones. It's going to cost our loved ones. When, the, when we first look at these terms of being disciples, we come to some figure of speech here. Obviously, Christ isn't saying, go hate your father. Go hate your kids. He's not saying that. Because that would be contrary. Because he said, love your kids. Love your, fa- love your wife and love your husband. But he's saying that using a word or a what we call in English a hyperbole. Saying that I want you to love me so much, so radically, that it almost looks like hate compared to any other relationship you have. That's how much love I want you to love me with. In fact, as we read scripture this morning, in Matthew 10, 37-39, he said, Whoever loves father and mother, daughter, brother, sister, son, yourself, is not worthy of me. You must love me so much to where those around you only see Christ. Those around you only see your relationship with Christ. And because of that relationship with Christ, all the other relationships pan out and come where they should be. So, our cost of our love. Christ uses this kind of language because He is eager to drive away these uncommitted, these people who are just coming around and just kind of seeing what He has to say. He wants to say, Either you are on board or you're not. So I want to really thin out the crowd to disperse the crowd. I don't want a whole multitude following me because most of them don't even care about following me. They're busy doing other things. Christ must be the center of our lives. And if he is not, then you will not, you will not and cannot be his disciple. Christ must be the center, the centrality of our lives. Many of us use the phrase, he must be number one. But really, that phrase is categorizing something. How about this? Christ is the center, and everything that you do is because of Christ. It pans out. He's the center of our lives. Paul does the same thing many times. And says, these people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Romans 1 says, these people will not. And Galatians 5, talking about the, the deeds of the flesh. These people will not enter the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6 Another list of people who will not enter the kingdom of God. Then Christ adds a little twist to the whole thing. As though it is easy not to give up those whom you love the most, you must also give up your own life. It's so hard to give up our loved ones. So hard to give up those whom we love so much. But it's even more, even harder to give up your own life. Many of us say that we try to be humble, but you know on your side, in your inside, that you are prideful to the core. And you need to work on... But he said, give up your own life. This statement cannot be made to accommodate the casual Christian, the casual approach to discipleship. He wants disciples willing to forsake everything. This calls for full-scale self-denial, even willingness to die for his sake. If necessary. 
That's where we see the next thing. The cost of your life. It will cost your life. In verse 27. He says, take up your cross. We must take our cross. And this cross does not mean what we've kind of, in our own Christianity, cultural Christianity says, maybe a cross around your neck. This is my cross. Or maybe I got a tattoo across. Maybe that's your cross. Or maybe it's your situation that you're in. I'm bearing this cross, whether it be disease or whether it be a struggle. I have to bear this. This is my cross to bear. Christ is not talking about that here. He's not talking about you need to bear. And many times we read these devotionals that talk about you need to bear Christ. And they go to these, um, these passages of scripture and say, take up your cross and follow him. So you have to take that and just follow him. No. He's saying radical punishment. Here's what in that culture thought of it. We sang about the wonderful cross. They didn't think the cross was too wonderful. The wonderful cross was... When Jesus said, take up his cross, here's what they thought. They thought of a cruel instrument of punishment. They thought of the most agonizing method known to man at that time for, pun- for killing someone. It was seen as a place for condemned criminals to be posterized and said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen to you. If you're a murderer, they put them up. So they say, if you murder then you are going to die like this. It's a displayment to show don't do these things. Jesus' listeners understood that he was calling them to die for him. They knew he was asking them to make the ultimate sacrifice, to surrender to him as Lord in every sense. This means, here's what this means. It means you will walk as he walks. You will talk as he talks. You will do as he does and you will act in the same manner. You will not waver. You will not quiver. Your life is his and you give it freely. For it costs you everything. It costs you your life. It costs you your life if necessary. Are you willing to give up your life for the cause of Christ? That's what Christ said. It's going to cost you your loved ones. It's going to cost you your life. But first thing, we, before we move on, let's figure out what is a disciple I know Don Pleger has spent 40 years telling you, here's a disciple of Christ. We have on our sign, making disciples. If I asked you, what is making a disciple, what would you say? When we see what we are seeing, it is need to reach the lost and get them saved. That's what making a disciple. Reaching the lost, getting them saved is part of it. That's part of it. Not wrong. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says... That go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. A true disciple is someone who is taught all things and wants to learn all things about God. Why does Christ not use the word Christian here? Maybe you ask that. Well, really, the word Christian came a while, way after Christ in Acts is the first time the word Christian is used. And the literal meaning of Christian is little Christ. This can mean someone who belongs to Christ. They were bought, purchased of slaves. You are slaves. That's what it means to be a disciple. You are slaves to him. Now the word disciple is very similar. These men would follow their rabbi, their teacher. And they would devote their entire life life to them they would drop everything 
And Christ said, follow me. I'll make you fishermen. They didn't say, hold on. Just wait. Let me finish what I'm doing. They dropped their nets and went. They spent night and day with this rabbi. They would spend every waking moment as much as they can to learn from this rabbi. To learn what they are teaching about God's word. These terms might seem impossible. And yes, they are impossible. To give up, to love as though you hate those around you. To love Christ that much to where it looks like hate around you. It's hard. To give up your own life, that's hard. But God has given the grace for us to do it. He's given the grace each day for us to do that. Christ then goes on in verse 28 and 32... And illustrates these for us. He starts with a person who starts to build. And he uses these two parables. And these parable, a parable is a story or an illustration that has a biblical meaning to it. And the first one we see is the building of a tower. This man goes and builds a tower. And he maybe lays a foundation. And he was not able to finish it because he forgot to count the cons. He forgot to count, hey, I need this much material. I need this much. Um, whatever it is. He forgot to count the cons. And many of us have driven by places and seen buildings that are halfway up. And they just stand there for months and months and months. And sometimes years. And you go, why is that building there? It just sits there. It's not completed. There's nothing there. And we go, you fool. You didn't count the cost of before you started building. When I was in grade school, there was a school, a Christian school, who they were building an addition to their school. They had a little extra students. They wanted to build some more um, classrooms. And this school started building. The walls went up and they even got the little bit of the roof up. And then they stopped. Because they ran out of money to keep building. And it sat there for over 10 years just sitting there. And they lost, they tried to raise tuition and people left because the tuition got too much. They couldn't afford it. So they lost students. And when you lose students, you lose even more money. And it took 10 years for them to finally figure out something to do with that um, part of the building. They didn't count the cost. They didn't say, how much is it going to cost me to build this temple or to build this um, school. Don't go into something without counting the cost first. This man did not count his cost. We also see another illustration that Christ brings up. A king who has 10,000 troops versus a king who has 20,000 troops. Now we say, well, it's obvious who, what side you want to be on. And when we hope that when you go into a battle or you go into a war, that we strategize what we're going our plan is. You, many times, if you are a history buff, you'll read about generals who sat there and strategized of how they're going to go approach this battle or this war. They didn't just go, "Okay, guys, let's go," and you know everybody from themselves. They strategized, figured out what the, what to do. The question is, who are, whose army are you part of? Are you part of the troop of 10,000 or are you part of the 20,000? To count the cost does not mean things are going to be easy. But it does prevent you from being a fool and making the wrong choice. We look at these terms that the Lord has shown us and we say, this is impossible again. If you are one of those, then 
you probably get it. You probably understand this, these scriptures because you get that you can't do it. And again, it's God's grace that helps you do it. Jesus here is initiating these terms. And these are radical terms. Radical. Things that most likely in your church, in a church this morning, is probably not preaching these kind of things. They'll back away. They'll actually don't want to preach these kind of things. Or they'll lighten it up. Make it different. But these are what Christ said. To be a disciple of mine, this is what you must do. But you think these are hard. Christ then issues one last thing. He's in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, that he has cannot be my disciple. The cost is everything to follow Christ. What does this mean? It, does this mean that I really have to give up everything in order to follow Christ? Turn back to Luke 9. Luke 9. Luke 9, verse 57 through 62. Follow along as I read, Luke 9, 57 through 62 says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here we are going to see a little of what Christ is talking about. Jesus was again talking to the people, but here in this portion of scripture, he individualized it. Individualized it. He didn't make it such a group thing. He, was talking to specific people. He, first of all, in verse 58, he said, you must give up all comfort to follow me. In verse 60, he said, let the dead bury the dead. Don't worry about them. They're already, their future's already decided. Don't worry about them. Verse 62, he said, you must give up those whom you love and you must follow me. Mark 10 says the same thing. The man asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? He said, go sell all that you have and come follow me. Oh, I can't do that, Lord. That sounds impossible. That's hard. I have all this stuff. How about just some of it? We would say, what does it mean? How do you, how do you be saved? You might say, admit. You must admit to, that you're a sinner. You must believe. We, must, we might say, say, repent of your sins. Pray this prayer. Walk this aisle. Sign this card. Get baptized. That's what saves you. Something that's good. You see, Jesus did not, did not have all the fancy books we have in evangelism. So he was a little skeptic of how to actually evangelize the people. You know, actually Christ said it the best. He says, go sell all that you have. I want you to give it all to me. Everything you hold precious is now mine. This is what it means to be born again. We live in a seeker-sensitive, postmodern world where we say there is no absolute truth. Follows, folks, this is absolute truth. If we do not radically follow Christ by giving up everything, Christ says 
you cannot be my disciple. You cannot. J.I. Packer says this, Jesus demands self-denial, that is self-negation. As a necessary condition of discipleship. Self-denial is a summons to submit to authority of God as Father and of Jesus as Lord and to declare lifelong war on one's instinctive egoism. What is to be negated is not personal self or one's existence as a rational and responsible human being. Jesus does not plan to turn us into zombies, nor does he ask us to volunteer for a robot role. The required denial is of carnal self, the egocentric, self-defying urge with which we were born and which dominates us so great in our natural state. Jesus links self-denial with cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is far more than enduring this or that hardship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Christ here is not saying to you, go divorce your wife. He's not saying, give up your kids. He's saying that he must have preeminent over all things in your life. He's saying he must have the full lordship. From the very beginning, you say, I want to follow you. You give up everything. It's not a gradual thing. It's full, complete lordship over your life at that moment. In order to follow Christ, you must give up all you have. You must give up the life because your life is his life. You must give up your father and your mother because your kids are not your kids. Your kids are God's kids in one sense. You must give up the things you love most, possessions, habits, addictions, because he overcomes those and you are his. You give up everything to follow Christ. You must give up everything to the point that there is nothing else to give. To the point where when you give up all, you say, Lord, all I have to give you is my life. And Lord, I have nothing else to give you. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It means that if you were the only Christian standing, you would stand. It means, it might mean death. It might mean unpopularity. Sometimes that's even harder. It might mean giving up those whom you love. So, have you counted the cost? You might say, well, I am in this situation or maybe in some other situation. And you, or you don't understand my situation. That does not matter. Christ didn't give these terms out based on situations. He gave it out to everyone. It says, by God's grace, you are not here this morning even, but God sovereignly put you here so that you would hear this. So that you would hear that it's going to cost you everything to follow me. And if you do not, he wants to emphasize it, if you do not, you are damned to hell forever. That's the cost if you don't follow me. A man went to a pearl store. He went, there was this great pearl, the most amazing pearl in all the world. And he wanted to buy his wife an anniversary present. And there's this pearl. And so he goes to the merchant and says, how much is this pearl? And the merchant says, well, how much do you have? And he pulls out his wallet and goes, 100, 1,000, 2,000, I have $5,000 in my wallet. All right, that'll work. He's like, 
do you have anything anything else? Well, he's like, well, I have some in my bank account. He's like, well, that will work. Please give me that. And then the merchant says, what what else do you have? He's like, well, I don't have any more money. Well, he's like, how'd you get here? Well, I have a car. I I drove. He's like, well, I'll take your car. Well, my wife has a car too. I'll take hers too. So you have a wife. I'll take her too. Do you have any kids? He's like, yes. I'll take your kids too. And at that point, the merchant asks, do you have anything else? Well, he says, well, I have my house. He's like, I'll take your house too, in fact. At that point, the merchant says, what else do you have? And the man looked up to him and says, I have nothing. It means giving up everything to follow Christ. This is radical. Yes, I know. This is radical. But it's worth it in the end. It's worth following Christ. It's not worth doing the opposite. Because if you do the opposite, Christ is very clear about what's going to happen. It costs this man everything for this pearl. What are you willing to give Christ? It takes everything if you want to follow Christ. Christ then uses one last illustration. We see verses 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is use of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away, and he who has ears, let him hear. A little background for this the salt. You see, in Christ's time, there would be merchants along the road, and they would be selling different things, fish, um, clothes, pottery, whatever they would be selling. They would be selling these things. And they would use salt. To, they would sell salt too. Because salt, we know, preserves things. And the real salt preserves for a long time. Now what these people would do is they would go get something that would be imitating salt. Be kind of like salt, but actually this salt would eventually lose its flavor. So if you would try to um, season it or anything, you, sometimes you would get flavorless salt. And Christ is saying that there are people among this crowd, there are people in the church this morning... Who have not counted the cost. There are people who in this church who are playing some kind of game. Who are really might claim to be a disciple. In your whole life you might have claimed to be a disciple. But in your heart you know you are not a disciple of Christ. And you have not counted the cost. He then goes on and says. You are that this is no better than those who are completely deny him. You know we sometimes. There's, if you're playing a game. Or playing that you know, playing this church game, you're as good as those who don't come. That's what he's saying. He tells him that you are not even good enough, not just for the ground or for the meats, but you are not good enough for the manure part. You are not good enough for the toilet, spiritually speaking, is what he's saying. If you are just playing some kind of game. Then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Those who understand this parable understood the cost. You see, because they had the ears, they understood it. Some of you might be here this morning, and you have never put your faith and trust in Christ. But first I want to talk to those who have. It's a wonderful thing, and you know the cost it has cost. To follow Christ. And you know what? Sometimes we aren't radical enough. And sometimes we have to be more radical. 
But it's worth it. It's worth it in the end when Christ says, Well done, good and faithful servant. But then there's also some people here who have never placed their trust in Christ. Who have never counted the cost. Some here who really are looking at their watch and saying, I need to get home, get ready for my Super Bowl party. Or I need to, you know, it's about lunchtime. I need to go. Christ has given everything to follow. And he says, all you have to do is have faith in the grace God will save you. But, he reminds us, it's going to cost you everything to follow me. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be this easy, glorious road, this open road. But he said, but the narrow gate is open. And it will be open until Christ comes back. But it's still narrow. And many people miss it. It's easier to go the, the easier way around. The only way we can is by God's grace and dependence on him to follow him. We must depend on God's grace to follow him. The one last poem I want to leave, and when I finish, I'll, I would like, I haven't told her this yet, but I would like Kim to come up and play the song, I Surrender All. Um, it's in the hymnal somewhere, Kim. <laughs> um, but um, after I read this, I like to sing that chorus of that song because um, many times we sing it as maybe an invitational thing, but this is more of a confession. Do we surrender all things to Christ? Do we do that? Let me read this poem to you. It's called, I Am a Disciple, and it's by an unknown author. It says, I am part of the fellowship of the, the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ and will not look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I am a disciple of Christ, and my past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am a disciple of Christ who is finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, pain vision, worldly talk, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I am a disciple of Christ and no longer need a preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, or popularity. I am a disciple of Christ and do not have to be first, top, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. I am a disciple of Christ and lean on Christ's presence, walk by faith, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by his power. I am a disciple of Christ and my faith is fixed, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, and my way is rough. I am a disciple of Christ and my... My companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I am a disciple of Christ and cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I am a disciple of Christ and will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Christ and will not give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and taught up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Christ and must go until he comes, give until I drop, teach until all know, and work until he stops me. When Christ comes, 
for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My title will be clear. I am a disciple of Christ. Christ. 